invite you to open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20. Encourage you to uh, just take your Bible and open it and keep it open and let the words that the Spirit has, has inspired be used by God as we uh, expound this morning. Uh, we're going to be, just if you remember where we are in the story, Jesus is uh, in Jerusalem. This is the last week, the last few days before he's uh, brought to the cross. And um, he's being challenged by the religious leaders. So uh, most of Luke chapter 20 has been taken up with the challenges of the leaders. Three different times, three different waves of challenges by uh, various parties as they're trying to discredit Christ. They're terrified of his increasing power and uh, they want to be, be rid of him. They want to lay their hands on him, but they, they don't know exactly how to go about that. And then we uh, came at the, uh, near the end of chapter 20. To Jesus' response to them in verses 41 through 44, that he is uh, David's son and David's Lord. He is the Christ, the very Son of God. And that's the last uh, meaningful in encounter, engagement that Jesus will have with the uh, religious leaders. Uh, and now in our text this morning, he's going to uh, condemn publicly the religious leaders and then point to a wonderful contrast in a poor widow. Let's give our attention to God's word. I'm going to begin reading at verse 45 of chapter 20, and we'll read through verse 4 of 21. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Then Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, we believe that every word is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is meant for the edification, the blessing, the building up of your people. And and so, Holy Spirit, who authored these words, we pray that you would now minister them to us, that we would live by them, for we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Help us to see our Savior, help us to see our need, help us to see the freedom we have in Him to live in confidence and joy. Lord, bless us in Jesus' name, amen. The big question that our text addresses and puts before us this morning is the question, what, what sort of life pleases God? What sort of life pleases God? I wonder if you've thought about that at all in uh, your recent past. Um, maybe we, we just get on with life and we do the best we can, but we don't really stop and consider. What, what is the life? we got one life to live. And uh, the older we get, the more we see how brief that life actually is. What, what, what really is a life? That delights the heart of God, that pleases God. That, that's the, the question that we're presented with this morning. And, and what we have here in Luke chapter uh, 20 and 21 is a wonderful insight into Jesus' answer to the question. 
Uh, and, and we'll see in Jesus' answer that uh, he sees things differently than people normally see. Uh, the things that impress people religiously does not impress Jesus at all. In fact, he condemns it. And the things that seem very unimpressive religiously to, to people uh, is very impressive to Jesus. We need to remember where we are in the story. It's Wednesday. Uh, Jesus will be uh, tomorrow, on Thursday, he'll have his last Passover meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. Uh, he'll be arrested that evening. Friday, he will be put to death on a cross. And I think we need to keep that context in mind because the words that Jesus speaks in these uh, verses in front of us are weighted with the the imminent reality of his own suffering and death. In John 12, we hear Jesus say, right at this time, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Jesus Christ came to die. But his soul is evidently being burdened already by what lies just hours and days ahead. And that sheds light, I think, important light, on our context. Jesus is not um, just sitting uh, by you know, a, a, a chalet there maybe by the, the Sea of Galilee, and, and they're just having a teaching time with the disciples. He is engaged in the battle. He's about to give his life, and, and so that colors the way that we hear his words as he condemns the religious leaders. They are the shepherds of Israel. And part of his anger with them is driven by the fact that as he sees the way they abuse the sheep and take advantage of the sheep and mislead the sheep and serve themselves in their leadership, Jesus is the good shepherd now who is about to give his life for the sheep. And the reality of, of what he's about just puts in stark contrast the awfulness of what they're about. And the same for this, this, this widow. His commendation for her as she gives all that she has to live on, it's all the more poignant in light of the approaching moment when he's going to give his very life. He's going to, he's going to give everything truly, even his blood. Jesus knows sacrifice when he sees it. Those who suffer recognize their own. And so we just have two basic points this morning. First, the condemnation and then the commendation. Uh, you have an outline maybe that will help you, but it's a very, very simple story. And let's just give our attention to it. Because there's things here Jesus wants us to see. We read in verse 45, in the hearing of all uh, the people, remember there are, there are crowds gathered around Jesus, a very great deal of interest in Jesus, and there, there's a, um, they've been watching Jesus spar with the religious leaders, and now Jesus says, in the presence of all the people, this is not a little private conversation he's having with his disciples, but he speaks to them, but so that everyone can hear, beware of the scribes. There's a warning here, there's something that Jesus wants them to be paying attention to. And he warns them to beware of the people that um, everyone in the crowd would have had some sort of respect for. Some sort of um, admiration. Scribes were the teachers. They, they're the ones who studied the word, studied the scriptures, and then told people what, what, what it meant. They're like preachers. 
Um, so they, they have a position in, in that community, much more really than preachers have today. I'm not complaining, it's just, it's just true. I just read an article um, from an old minister, why it's 10 reasons why it's harder to be a pastor today. And, when, and the thing he sort of kept coming back to is that uh, ministers used to have some, um, some status. Now, I don't know if that was helpful or not, but, but he says now they, they really don't. They're, um, they're in positions of religious authority, which is seen skeptically at best by the world in which we live. Well, in that day, scribes are honored. They're respected. It was just a given that these are men that God has placed to lead the people and to teach the word. And, and, and so they, were, they had a position of honor. Jesus says, beware of the thing that you, you are honoring, those you are honoring. Now remember, uh, the scribes have just given Jesus a compliment. If you remember, when he responded to the Sadducees about the issue of resurrection, he just destroyed their argument and quoted Scripture. And the scribes, who know the Scripture, said to him, verse 39, Teacher, you have spoken well. They are almost undoubtedly still standing there. And Jesus publicly denounces the scribes publicly shames them right after they have just complimented him. So there's, there's drama here. Why would Jesus respond so strongly, so publicly humiliating them? Well, because he hates what they're doing. He is incensed by their hypocrisy. And he is warning the people because their hypocrisy is a spiritual cancer that is killing, truly destroying God's people. And so Jesus delivers a devastating, spot-on exposure, rebuke of what actually motivates these men. And if you look at the list, it seems Pretty benign. They like to walk around in long robes. All right, they've got a preference for clothing. They like being greeted in the marketplace. I like being greeted in the marketplace. It's right when you go to Meyer, it's not not so bad when someone says hi. They like the best seats in the synagogues. Well, here we're starting to sense, okay, there's something else going on here, but some of you come and, and you like your, your seat, but the best seats here in the synagogue would be the seats up front, the seats of honor. They like those seats. They love the places of honor at feasts. They like to be seen in prominent places. They like to be served first. They, they like... You see, they have a position of honor and respect in the community, and they like it that way. Um, they, they like to be known and noticed, and that's what's underneath this. You see, they're, they're just enjoying their privileged status. They're, they're enjoying the respect and the honor that, that comes with their office. But, but something's fundamentally not right. They, they devour widows' houses. And we don't know exactly what that means, but there's a sense here clearly that they take advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. They, they take advantage of the needy. 
which false religion always does, you see, no matter how good it might look on the outside, wicked men are just wicked men and will do wicked things. And one of the things that wicked people do is take advantage where they can. You see this happening still today. If you, um, I haven't done research on this, but I've, I've heard it, and I don't doubt that it's, it's true, that TV evangelists and health wealth preachers have learned uh, that they can get the most money by appealing to the needs, the plight of single women. Um, in their need, um, they, can, they can shape the message. If you give, if you sow your faith and give to the ministry, God promises, and they can do that in particular ways to take advantage of exactly the poor and those who are most vulnerable. They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. They like to be seen as, as spiritual men. They really do. They, they would pray and pray and pray. Nice, long, serious, very serious, very reverent, very orthodox, very noteworthy prayers. People would admire and Jesus in another place will say that they like to do that on a street corner to, to make sure that they have an audience. The problem uh, with, the, with these leaders is, is that it is all external. You see, what's motivating them is a love for prestige, a love for position, a love for power, a love for respect, a love for admiration. They are there in that place to receive to themselves from God's people glory. They like glory. Jesus says it's all hypocrisy. Matthew 23, if you really want to get the full, uh, ex, uh, the full extent of Jesus' message here, Luke just captures it very briefly. There's a whole chapter, Matthew 23, where Jesus unloads on these guys. He tells the people in Matthew 23, watch out for, the, for them. They, they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And so whatever they do, the first question they're asking is, who's watching? Who's, who's paying attention? They do all their deeds for men, not for God. And so that sort of hypocrisy, you see, makes a mockery of the glory of God. It makes a mockery of true religion. It makes a mockery of God's salvation. Because, you see, everything that they're doing, has, they're, they're, they're speaking the words of God. They're participating in the ceremonies and sacraments of God. They, they, they talk about the commands of God, but it has nothing to do with God. Not in their heart. God is just a tool to be used to further their own agenda, to further their lifestyle, to get what they actually want. They're using God to their own sinful ends. But Jesus says they will receive the greater combination. In other words, there is a special place in hell reserved for such people. Matthew 23, again, 33. You serpents, Jesus says, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is Jesus talking. He's incensed by the wickedness and the hypocrisy of these men. You see, 
these men are, their sin is aggravated, as we read in Westminster Larger Catechism, it's aggravated by the fact that they have knowledge. They have the scriptures. Everyone doesn't have a Bible. You don't have a printing press. You, there's, there would be a scroll in the synagogue. And these men had access to it, and they studied it. They had the scriptures. They should have known better. They had Isaiah chapter 1 where God castigates and uh, rebukes the, the leaders of Israel for doing exactly what these men are doing. Chapter 58 again. And so their religion, you see, it's offensive to God. Better they were pagans. Hell would be a much better experience for them. But it's precisely because they are religious in the true religion and yet rotten to the core, it's all about them, that, that, that God is so offended. See, the, the, their piety has no love for God. Their piety has no concern for, for God's people. And these are the leaders. These are the examples. These are the shepherds. They're supposed to care for the sheep. That's what shepherds do. They're supposed to search out wandering sheep and bind up the wounds of herding sheep and lead them into the green pastures of God's word and besides the still waters of his promises. That's what they're supposed to do. But that's not what they're doing. They are leading people instead, God's people, into an empty, hopeless, dead religion of external righteousness and inner pride. So Jesus says in Matthew 23, again, 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. People who come uh, wanting a word from God, people who, who sense that, that they need to be made right with God, uh, people who have a longing for the kingdom of heaven, and they come to the, the religious leaders, and what they get are laws and self-righteousness and rules, and the kingdom of heaven gets slammed in their face. You don't think God takes offense? If I could just make a quick word of application. This is a hard word for pastors. It's a, it challenges pastors. What, what, why do we do ministry? What are we in it for? What do we really want? The praise of men? What are we really concerned about? Our position our ministry? Or does our heart really actually beat for God's glory and God's people? That's a very convicting a thing for me to ask myself. But you see, it, it, it comes to all of us. There are Christian parents who slam the kingdom of heaven in their children's face because it's all about you. It's about your peace, your quiet, your comfort, your reputation, your desire, your will, your way. It's all about you. It's about your rules, your laws, your expectations. And these are God's kids. And because of all your rules and expectations, because of your pride, you are slamming the kingdom of heaven in your child's face. It happens. It is awful. Jesus despises it. How will we escape hell if, you see, this is the pattern of our life? That's, that's what Jesus says. If your religion is about you, 
How, how are you going to escape hell? And so Jesus, you see, is incensed against these men because their religion is it's empty. It's hypocrisy. And in the light of that, we have this beautiful, beautiful woman. Against all the things that Jesus despises, in light of all that he despises about these men, it's clear that Jesus delights in what he sees in this woman. He doesn't say a lot, but he notices. So here we have this incredible contrast, particularly if we lived in that day and age. We have this contrast of, of the, the, these men, these powerful men, rich men, the, the, the leaders and rulers of Israel, and they've got money, they got prestige, they got position, power, they're respected, they're very religious, and the Jewish religious system works for them, you see? It's designed around them. It serves their purposes, it grants their assumptions, it feeds their unexamined pride, it works for them. And then you have this woman, a widow, and the Jewish religious system doesn't work for her at all. She has no social standing. She is utterly dependent on the kindness of others. She has no rights in the courts of law. She's an easy target for abuse and manipulation. It's clear that she is suffering the consequences of her status. She's dirt poor. It's interesting that the text says that Jesus looked up and saw... And there's, there's more than just what happens with physical eyesight. You see, Jesus sees what's going on. Here are the crowds in Jerusalem for Passover, a religious festival, a celebration of God's great act of deliverance, bringing Israel out of Egypt. That's why they're there. They're there to celebrate God's salvation. Except that's, for so many, that's not what's going on. There's, 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 there's a dead religion taking place. People are, 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 are there to see friends. People are there to make money. People are there to network, to have a little time away, a little holiday. People are there to do religious things. But they don't see things right. And so people, you see, are impressed by the wrong things and overlook the right things. They need to be warned about these religious leaders because they think these men are impressive. They tend to lean towards agreeing with them and following them. They think that's what you're supposed to do. They need to be alerted to the widow's gift because they would never notice it in a thousand years. It's so insignificant. It couldn't possibly be less significant. And so you see... <clears throat> Jesus sees things differently. And Jesus wants us to see things as they really are. And so Jesus looks up and sees this woman that no one there out would really see. The men, the rich men who are putting their gifts in the, there would be 13 um, uh, offering boxes in the shape of a trumpet, shofar, and, and they would drop that money in and make a nice ring as it made its way in, inside the temple. 
And the rich men who were giving their gifts, there would be a little uh, a, a gathering. Maybe there were benches there where people would be just gathering. And, and it was sort of a, something just to stand there and watch people come and, and make their offering. And you could, you could make guesses how much they're giving or um, who this person is, whatever. But here's this woman. The rich men around her would, would ignore her. They might pity her. Uh, they very well might despise her because if, if, uh, if she's a widow, it, it most likely means that if she's suffering this great tragedy, that there's, something, there's some sin in her life and God is, is judging her. That's just simply the way people would think. But they wouldn't really see her. Maybe if she was attractive, some of them would lust after her. But nobody sees a person made in the image of God, a precious child of God, a sheep of Christ, of God. No one, no one would really be paying attention to the life that she's living for the glory of God. And so she walks up and she puts in these, these two lepta, small paper-thin copper coins. It was the smallest amount of money you could have. It was hardly money at all. The two of them together would equal a quarter of a penny. I mean, it's utterly, it's it's. It's insignificant. A plumber says that the Jewish law said you had to give two coins if you're going to come. So she has two coins, but it's a quarter of a penny. That's it. You literally could not possibly give less. But Jesus says, look at that. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And the word all of them there means all of them combined. You can take all the gifts that have been given to this point, and this lady has put in more with those two lepta than the whole bunch of it all together. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And that's it. That's, that's the end of the story. Uh, Jesus doesn't go on to expound it. Uh, the disciples don't ask questions. That's where the text leaves us. The question then is, what's the lesson? What are we to learn from this? Uh, this is where, uh, I've listened to several sermons on this, uh, where, where, where people like to launch into a text on stewardship, um, a sermon on stewardship and, and giving, and, and that certainly is addressed here, but I, it's not the point. Jesus isn't on his way to the cross and, and condemning the religious leaders and, oh, by the way, a few thoughts on stewardship. This is about, you see, something much more fundamental than that. It's about who you are and how, what your stance is toward God in the presence of God. Because on the one hand, you have the hypocrisy and the self-reliance and the self-serving religion of the leaders of Israel. And Jesus hates it. He is infuriated by it. And in stark contrast, you have this needy woman who is, is a picture of brokenness, humility, and yet lives with a radical reliance on God. Now, now, two lepta aren't going to buy you 
anything. I mean, she's dependent on, on gifts to live. But there's still two lepta. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the only money that she has. And, and what she decides to do with it is, is give it to the Lord as, a, as an offering. She, she can't give really anything else at all, not at the temple. So she, she just brings what she has and she gives it away. Whatever her motives might be, you, you have to acknowledge there's this a radical reliance on God. And, and, and so that, I, I believe, is the lesson. What is the life that pleases God? Jesus hates religion that has the external markings but not the internal reality. This text also tells us that the Lord knows exactly the true nature of your religion and my religion. And he cares profoundly about that truth. Jesus knows, you see, what's going on with the long robes and what's going on with the greetings. It seems so innocuous, so benign. But it's not benign. It's self-worship. He knows exactly what's going on when they're, when they're looking for the best seat at the feast and in the synagogue. He understands it vastly better than the men themselves. You see, and the same is true for you. The same is true for me. Jesus knows exactly why you're here this morning. Why you call yourself a Christian. He knows if you're here because you, you know that you need God. He, know, he knows if, if you're here because you know that to live apart from God is death. Tis good his face to seek. My refuge is the living God. His praise I long to speak. And he, and he knows that even if, if you have a, a spiritual deadness about you this morning, he knows if you know that that's what you want and that's what you need. He knows, he knows the truth about you. And then on the, on, the, on the reverse side, he would know if, if you're just here because it's the way you grew up and it works, you see, as part of your self-made West Michigan, middle-class, American, pro-family lifestyle. And it's good for the kids and and you like good theology, right? whatever it is, Jesus knows, he knows your motives. And he knows it better than you do. And this text tells us we better be paying attention to our heart. What are you doing in your religion? Why are you here? Jesus knows. Do you know? And so the, the first lesson is simply, let's pay attention to the religion that, that Jesus delights in and the religion that Jesus despises. And let's pay attention because you're going to meet him face to face. And the reality is going to be exposed. And the, the consequences will be eternal. It's a sobering text. It's meant to be. He's on his way to the cross. He's not playing around. Secondly, the lesson, I think, is that we need to understand the economy of heaven. 
Jesus, as I said, sees differently than we see, and he delights in the small things, you see, that flow from a life dedicated to and dependent on God. Jesus delights in the small things that flow from, he delights in the small things that flow from a life dedicated to and dependent on God. And both those things matter. If you're dedicated to doing things for God, it's fundamentally different than if you're dedicated to God and dependent on God. And you're, you're committed to, to loving God and receiving from God all that God has to give and all that, that you need in order to live. It's, those are two different religions. People who, who go and do things for God and people who come to God to to cast themselves on him. This woman, as she's giving her two lepta, is not seeking her righteousness in it. Jesus would never have congratulated it. She's just coming and saying, Lord, what I have I give, but I am dependent on you. That's the difference. You see, that's the religion that is pleasing to God. And out of that religion, a life that is dedicated to and dependent on God, out of that flows a a completely different lifestyle. It's going to change the way you look at people. It's going to change the way you look at your money. It's going to change where your values are because, you see, you're a changed person. You're a new creation. You can't live this way without the Holy Spirit doing His work. But, but friend, I just would, would ask you to ask yourself, why do I do my religion? Why do, I, why do I have devotions if I have devotions? Why do I go to church? Why do I give to the Lord? Why, why do I try to obey? What's the motive? If, if the motive is because I'm, I'm trying to, to satisfy God, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person, well, you're just, you're just following the scribes. But if your motive is... Um, I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. I want, I, want to, I want God to do that work in me. I want to be, I want to be a changed person by the power of God. I want, to, I want my life to count for God. Um, and, and I'll let God determine how that works. Maybe, maybe that's just me serving my family. You serve your family, you, you, you wash those dishes and, and do the laundry and, and, and love your kids, and, or, or you, you go and you do the work that God's called you to do. As a, maybe as a single person, you're involved in, in people's lives in a meaningful way and blessing them. Small things that no one will ever notice. It's never going to make the newspaper. God knows. Boys and girls, you want to know how to live a life that pleases the Lord? The Bible tells you how to do it. Love your mom and your dad and, and, and strive to obey them. Not, not because you're just a good kid, but because it pleases God, boys and girls. He loves it. You make your bed because mom said make your bed. It's a little thing. It's too leftist. not a big deal. God delights in it. It's a different way of seeing things. You know, how many times in a day aren't you faced with, am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve someone else? Whether I pick up something on the floor or do something at work or take out the trash? I don't, what is it? A thousand times a day. Jesus notices. And he delights in it. And he loves when we give our 
thing, our valuable things away. We give our time away. We, we give that, 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 that piece of quiet that we had reserved for ourselves, and, and then a need comes along, and, and we we're willing to, to say, I'm going to give that away because I love God and I want to be, I want to be fruitful. Does that make sense? It, it's not the big things that, that is most, are most important. The big things will never matter if the small things aren't happening. But finally, let me close with this. We need to remember that Jesus is speaking these words on his way to a cross, and he's going to a cross to die for sinners. He's going to a cross to die for people like scribes, people who, who are hypocrites by nature and, and who utterly, absolutely deserve hell. He is rebuking them. He asks them, how are you going to escape hell? In part because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He admonishes them and exposes them because they'll never possibly be saved if they don't realize who they actually are and what God thinks of it. He's not, he's not, just, he's not just yelling at them, he's calling them. That's good news because you and I have, we have hip, hypocrisy in our life. Every time you get angry with someone else's sin when you are utterly blind to your own, every time you put on a nice show on a Sunday morning but the truth of what's going on at home is fundamentally different, when you, your prayers in public sound a certain way and your prayers in private maybe don't exist at all, that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy, and God knows it. But the wonder you see is that there's grace for hypocrites. There's grace for repentant hypocrites. If you and I are willing just to say, Lord, you know the truth of my life. And you know, you know that I'm, my public and private persons are often not the same. And my external, my internal are often not lined up. And you repent of that. And you turn to God and say, God, make it one. There's grace abounding grace for repentant hypocrites. And there is love in the cross that's able to break our own proud self-reliance. There's love in the gospel that's able to change you. As you are rooted and established in the love of God, God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine in your life. He's absolutely able to absolutely fundamentally change the way you feel, change the way you think, change the way you see, change the way you are in the world. Because he's changing you. And it's less and less becoming about you. And it's more and more becoming about him. He's able to do it. Don't settle for any religion that doesn't have that as its reality. That's what God is able and willing to do as we come to him. Let's bow in prayer. God in heaven, your word exposes us this morning. But I thank you that it exposes us to save us. I thank you that Jesus Christ, who speaks such hard words, such true convicting words, is the Jesus who went to a cross to purchase the redemption of hypocrites. And God, I pray that your gospel today would make us more authentic, that we would, Lord, put away the hypocrisy. I pray that we would have, be more like this beautiful woman, a humble radical reliance on God. It would not be about us anymore. But the thing that we would be committed to is knowing Jesus Christ, 
knowing the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, being made like him. Father, you know the, uh, the heart of every person here. Jesus, you know it perfectly. And I pray that this morning you would, you would bring us to repentance in a beautiful way that would free us to love maybe as we never have loved before. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.